0: invite you to turn your bibles to Exodus chapter 10. Exodus chapter 10. If you don't have a bible, you're welcome to use a bible right there in front of you. It's the second book towards the beginning, Genesis and then Exodus. We uh, are working through this book of Exodus. Just if you're visiting with us today, I just want you to know that we just uh, a general pattern for uh, the preaching time is is to work through one specific book. We're just this time working through Exodus, and the evenings we're going through Luke. And uh, so I think it would be helpful for us to continue on with our study and uh, show at the end, I think, how this points to our Savior. Exodus chapter 10 is where we will be this morning. We live in a world that is opposed to God. And those who try to follow God are sometimes faced with the sinking feeling at times that maybe God's not there or that God seems to be losing. By faith, Jacob brought all 70 of his family to Egypt so that they could be cared for by Joseph and Pharaoh. But eventually, Jacob died, and then Joseph died. And fast forward 400 years from the time of Jacob coming to Egypt, Israel now has been under the rule of Egypt for for four centuries now, and Egypt has been making it more and more difficult for Israel to survive. But Egypt at this point needs Israel. Israel has grown to a large number, and they have turned into, for Egypt, a cash cow. Because all the production and livelihood, a lot of the production and livelihood that Egypt has comes from the economy of the the people of Israel. After Joseph died, the text of Scripture tells us that there arose another king of Egypt who did not know Joseph nor the things that had been done to bring Egypt to a place of great prominence and power. And so God raises up a man, a man named Moses. Moses comes along to deliver Israel from out from under the imp- oppression of Egypt, but since the very beginning of the time that Moses meets with this Pharaoh, he has been met with rejection. Up until this point in our study, Pharaoh has mocked God and has resisted God, but he has not given in. I wonder if Israel at this point has questioned if God was even there. I wonder if Israel questioned whether God was winning or whether God could win. Because all of these attempts to get Pharaoh to let God's people go, the people of Israel, to leave Egypt were met with failure from Israel's perspective. So far we've seen seven miracles or plagues that have come on the people of Egypt in chapters 7 through 9. And each plague seems to be increasingly worse to the people of Egypt. It begins with water turning into blood. And then the infestation of of the land with frogs, and then mosquitoes, and then these biting insects, and then pestilence, which kills many of the animals, and then boils, and then last time, a couple weeks ago, we saw this hailstorm that killed people and animals. God's power is seen by Egypt and by Israel, and as we recount or are reminded of the story, we see it in an unprecedented way. And the purpose of it, as we've been seeing throughout the study, is that Egypt and Israel and future readers like us would know that He alone is God. So that we would know that God is not dead, nor does He sleep. God is not losing the battle, but God is at work behind the scenes to accomplish exactly what He wants at the exact time that He wants in a way that brings about maximum awe from us as we observe Him at work. So let's see if we can see that, that idea as we read through the text. I'm going to read beginning in chapter 10 with verse 1. Exodus chapter 10, verse 1. This is the Word of God. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart. And the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians, and how I performed my signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, go. Behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory. They shall cover the surface of the land so that no one will be able to see the land. They will also eat the rest of what has escaped, what is left to you from the hail, and they will eat every tree which sprouts for you out of the field. Then your houses shall be filled, and the houses of all your servants, and the houses of all the Egyptians, something which neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day. That they came upon the earth until this day. And he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not realize that Egypt is destroyed? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. Who are the ones that are going? Moses said, We shall go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds. We shall go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. Then he said to them, Thus may the Lord be with you, if I ever let you and your little ones go. Take heed, for evil is on your mind. Not so. Go now, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you desire. So they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come up on the land of Egypt and eat every plant of the land, even all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord directed an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled in all the territory of Egypt. They were very numerous. There had never been so many locusts, nor would there be so many again. For they covered the surface of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And they ate every plant of the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Thus, nothing green was left on tree or plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hurriedly called for Moses and Aaron. He said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore, please... Forgive my sin only this once and make supplication to the Lord your God that he would only remove this death from me. He went out from Pharaoh and made supplication to the Lord. So the Lord shifted the wind to a very strong west wind, which took up the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not one locust was left in all the territory of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the sons of Israel go. God is doing something very great in the land of Egypt for His people and so that Egypt would see that He is God. And that is that He is showing His supreme power through this plague. This time, the eighth plague, the eighth plague of the locusts. The purpose of the plague is shown for us in verses 1 and 2 says at the end of verse 1 that I may perform these signs of mine among them and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them that you may know that I am the Lord. God saying I accomplished this plague so that you would be able to tell your sons and grandsons how I made a fool out of the Egyptians. How I am... A more powerful, the most powerful God in all the universe. There is none like God. In the first part of verse 1, notice, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants. Again, we see that God stands behind the events that take place in all of life, including the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. God stands behind it. And somehow He does it without committing any evil purpose is to educate future generations of the miracle of God and to increase their faith at the end of verse 2, so that you would know that I am the Lord, speaking of Israel. And like with the previous plagues, many of the previous plagues, God gives a warning. And the warning is found in verses 3-11. through Pharaoh was supposed to do what God had been telling him all along, which was to let the people of Israel go so that they would worship God. And the consequences are given this time in verses 4 to 6. If he refuses to let God's people go, here's what would happen. Verse 4, at the end, I will bring locusts in your territory. And the extent of the locust plague is is not just a, a, a common annoyance or something that just comes and goes for a short time. But notice verse 5, they shall cover the surface of the land so that, you will, that no one will be able to see the land. It will eat the rest of what has escaped, what is left from the hail. So if you remember from the hailstorm, It had killed people and animals that did not take shelter, but it also destroyed a lot of their crops. The hail was so devastating. This time the locusts would come and anything that was green that was left was going to be taken by the locusts. A locust, as you know, is a type of a grasshopper that travels in swarms, and they can breed in a hurry. The female lays about 22,500 eggs at one time. And so within three to ten days, the eggs will hatch. So there's a short time in which those, those uh, locusts are hatched. And, and so just in a very short period of time, you can have billions of locusts. Now, it's hard for us to imagine that these small locusts would cause so much damage, right? Because a locust is, is very small. It only weighs two grams, about the weight of a dime. But you have to keep in mind that a locust can eat its entire weight, its its own weight, daily. Now, some of you are imagining what a good day that would be if you could eat your own weight daily. I mean, what kind of things could you possibly scarf down? But repel those thoughts. That is gluttony. That is not good. But but these animals can do this, and so they can create great a great amount of devastation. It's hard for us Westerners to appreciate the devastation of a Form of locusts can have on society. In fact, locust outbreaks anywhere in the world are pretty rare. And part of that is because they have such good technology now. They have international agencies that use satellite and other technology to track locust outbreaks. And when they find them, they meet them with aircraft and other vehicles that spread these powerful pesticides that kill them before they can create too much damage. But if these locust swarms are not contained, then these animals can do great amount of devastation to a land in a short period of time. In 1889, there was a swarm in the Middle East that was estimated to be 12,000 square miles full of locusts. It's about the size of southeast Michigan. And inside each square mile, there's an estimated 120 million locusts. So you're talking, in one locust swarm, 1.4 trillion locusts. And each one of them can eat its own body weight in a single day. So that means that that in that single outbreak, they could have eaten 13 million tons of vegetation in one day. That's the equivalent of the weight that there is in the Hoover Dam twice. And so these... These animals are are very deceivingly destructive. For Egypt, this is a serious problem. In December of 1963, South Africa was infected by locusts for weeks. And in order to fight these creatures, they spent, in order to to fight them, they spent thirty thousand dollars in a day. Now, each day, I should say, South Africa is in a good region when it comes to agriculture. Egypt is not. Egypt is in a desert region. So how much more devastating would it be for for Egypt to lose all of its crops to this swarm of locusts? And we know this is devastating because of the end of um, verse 6. Something which neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day that they came upon the earth until this day. In other words, this... This miracle is unprecedented in Egypt's history. No one has ever seen a locust swarm like this. So, while Pharaoh is given this warning, listen if you let God's people go, you're going to avoid this plague. Notice Pharaoh's response. First, it starts with the deliberation in verse 7 with his servants. Pharaoh's servant said to him, How long will this man, speaking of Moses, be a snare to us? Let the men go. They may serve the Lord their God. Do you not realize that Egypt is destroyed? Look, look around you, Pharaoh. Look at all the devastation that's been caused by all these plagues. Haven't you seen what's happened here? And so they actually give the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, good advice, similar to chapter eight, and verse nineteen, when the magicians say to Pharaoh, "This is the finger of God. This is not. Allah. This is much bigger than us, Pharaoh. We can't control this. We can't avoid." what God is going to do unless we let these people go. So, verses 8-11, through 11, Moses and Aaron are brought before Pharaoh. And here's what Pharaoh says to them. Go, serve the Lord your God. And if he would have stopped there, he would have done well. He would have avoided further trouble on his land and his people. But instead, he asks this question at the end of verse 8. Who are the ones that are going? Who, who, who are going to go? Who's going to do this sacrificing? When when we look at Pharaoh's response here in verse 10, it sounds like Pharaoh is sending Israel away with God's blessing. Moses tells them that we're taking everybody. We're taking all of our flocks. We're taking all of our livestock. We're taking all of our people. Not just the men who are going, but notice what Pharaoh says in verse 10. Thus, may the Lord be with you if I ever let you or your little ones go. It sounds like what Pharaoh is saying is, May the Lord's blessing be with you. But if you continue reading on to verse 11, look at, he, look at what he says. He says, not so. Go now, the men among you. In other words, only. Only the men can go. You can't take everyone with you. And so actually what Pharaoh is saying here is not go with the Lord's blessing in verse 10. He's actually using sarcasm. So here's how Douglas Stewart translates it to help us see the idea. In verse 10, the idea is this. Oh sure, you can go, that's fine. It would prove that God were really with you if you ever were allowed to go with everyone. But it's clearly obvious, Moses, that you have evil on your mind. That you're planning to leave and never come back. And that's in fact what he was doing. That wasn't evil, that's what God had commanded him to do. So in verse 11, Pharaoh rejects Moses' demand from God. You cannot go. You cannot go. He says, no way. Go out from here. Only the men can go. can't take everyone. And the reason for that, as I've mentioned before, is that Pharaoh wanted the people to come back. He wanted them to come back. If they had family still living in Egypt, they would have to come back. But if they took everyone with them, would they ever have any reason to come back to a place where they were being oppressed? No, they'd find their own land. And that's, in fact, what God was leading them to do. So because Pharaoh was unwilling to let all of them go, to go and make a sacrifice to God, God brings about this miracle plague in verses 12 to 15. Now, look back to um, chapter 20, uh, chapter 9, verse 25, because we see the devastation that came upon Egypt from the hail. It says in chapter 9, verse 25, The hail struck all that was in the field through all the land of Egypt, both man and beast, The hail also struck every plant of the field and shattered every tree of the field. Then verse 31, Now the flax and barley were ruined, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bud. In other words, the barley and flax were both ready to be harvested, and yet this hailstorm had devastated it. But they had some hope, verse 32, but the wheat and the spelt were not ruined. Well, when the locusts are going to come through here in chapter 10, verses 14 to 16, they're not going to leave anything. I'm sorry, verses 12 to 15. Any crops, any vegetation that has survived the hailstorm are going to be eaten up by these locusts. Look at verse 12, chapter 10, verse 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts that they may come up on the land of Egypt, every plant of the field, even all that the hail has left. So whatever is left from the hail is going to be destroyed by the locusts. Look at verse 15. These locusts covered the surface of the whole land so that the land was darkened and they ate every plant of the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left, thus nothing green was left on tree or plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. The locusts come in quickly and they do, do their damage very quickly. They can fly at about 17 miles per hour. According to verse 14, they settle down. They settle down to the place where you can't even see the ground. They're so, they're so, they're so thick. The utter destruction of every living piece of vegetation would have long-lasting effects for the Egyptians. They had already lost a lot of their livestock in the plague of pestilence in chapter 9. And then, all those who were not protected from the hailstorm, and now their harvest was completely ruined. Not to mention that any vegetation that they had stored somewhere for the season following the harvest would all have been eaten up by the locusts. So now they have fewer animals to plow the field for the next sowing season. And this is going to make farming extremely difficult for Egypt. What a reversal. I mean, if Egypt had only known and had thought about their own history, they would have known that the source of their wealth and their rise to quick power was because of the hand of God through God's man, Joseph. And yet, when they turned their backs on Joseph and on Joseph's God and on jo- and on God's people, they also receive God's hand, but this time not a hand of God's blessing, but instead a hand of God's judgment and the power, the the devastation that could come from a God who was rejected. And so as this. Locust plague is devastating the land very quickly. Notice what Pharaoh does in verse 16. Here's his plea for relief. Pharaoh hurriedly called for Moses and Aaron. You see his desperation here. And notice what he says. I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Here's Pharaoh's second attempt at repentance. The first one we saw in chapter 9, verse 27, where he said, I have sinned this time. But, but this here is a little bit farther than he had gone before. Before, he sinned against Moses and he didn't ask for forgiveness. He just said, I have sinned. Remove the plague. This time, he recognizes that he sinned against God and that he needs forgiveness. He says, I have sinned against the Lord and against you. Now, please forgive my sin, verse 17, only this once. But like Pharaoh before, this is not genuine repentance. I mentioned last time, that the mark of genuine repentance is its fruit. Jesus said, You will know them by their fruit. A good tree doesn't bear bad fruit. So, neither does a bad tree bear good fruit. So, for Pharaoh, a bad tree, he's not going to bear good fruit. Good fruits of repentance, he's only saying this with his mouth just to remove the consequences of his sin. In verses 18 and 19, Even though he has this attempt at repentance that's not genuine, God still is willing to remove this plague. So in verse 18, Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and made supplication to the Lord. So the Lord shifted the wind to a very strong west wind, which took up the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not one locust was left in all the territory of Egypt. We see God's powerful hand to be able to bring these locusts in in a hurry, make them and do the devastation that's necessary on this land, but then also to remove them. Notice the response by Pharaoh, which is the same as what we've seen before. Verse 20, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and He did not let the sons of Israel go. See what's happening here? As soon as the consequences of Pharaoh's sin, as soon as the devastation is gone, Pharaoh hardens his heart again. Again, God is behind it in in a way that brings about his glory. Sometimes it feels like God is not winning. And for Israel, watching these plagues take place must have been confusing. Is God still alive? Is God winning? Or is God dead? So Let me just encourage you this morning. When it feels like God is dead, we need to trust His Word. When it feels like God is dead, we need to trust His Word. The work of God during the time prior to the exodus of the people of Israel from Egypt is not much different than the work of God following the death of Jesus. I mean, imagine what the disciples must have been feeling when this promised Messiah, He comes. He performs all these great miracles and shows that He is the one that the Old Testament prophets had been predicting and looking for. He was born of a virgin in a town called Bethlehem, Ephrathah. And He would have authority over sickness and death and disease and evil spirits. He caused the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the lame to walk. And he even raised people from the dead. Jesus' teaching was authoritative and compelling. He drew large crowds, and, and, and these crowds wanted to see Him perform more miracles. But with His growing popularity came the envy of the religious leaders who were kind of getting pushed to the periphery, not as big of a concern anymore because you have this man Jesus. And so these religious leaders trumped up some charges against him and they were even able to find one of Jesus' own disciples who was willing to betray him. And at the right time, this disciple took the Roman soldiers right to the location where he was staying. But the disciples couldn't allow it. The other disciples were standing on guard, protecting Jesus. They couldn't allow Him to be arrested and executed, so they tried to fight for Him. Peter pulled out his sword, but Jesus seemed to be unconcerned about being arrested. Well, He was arrested. They put Jesus on trial. He was wrongly convicted of blasphemy and trying to usurp the Roman government. And the penalty for this from Rome was death. The disciples couldn't believe it. How could this be death? Certainly, something is going to happen before he dies. Eventually, Jesus does die. They must have been thinking they were living through a nightmare. There's no way that the promised Messiah would ever die. Messiahs don't die. They live. They win. They reign over their enemies. Somehow this one died. The last chapter of Luke, Luke's Gospel tells us that the disciples were troubled and fearful that He died. That is, His closest followers, the ones who knew Him the best, couldn't understand what God was doing. Was God dead? Or was He asleep? Was God losing? That this Messiah would die? We have a song that we sing around Christmas time. It says, And in despair I bowed my head There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. So the disciples wait. He's in this tomb. And they're beside themselves. What's going to happen? But we know, and we celebrate today, that Christ did not stay dead, did He? Here's the next verse of that song. It says, Then pealed the bells more loud and deep God is not dead, nor does He sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, good will to men. This side of Christ's death, we understand the purpose. And it was to bring about life for all those who would trust in Him. Maybe you're visiting today and, and you're looking at the events of your life and trying to make sense of them and wondering how God could possibly be in control And I'm here to tell you on the authority of God's Word that everything that God does is right. And that God is not far away. He is near and He orchestrates the events of your life to bring you to a place where you can see His power and you can respond in repentance and faith. You and I are very much alike. We are human beings who are born sinners. And the Bible tells us that our sin is offensive to God who is perfectly holy. And the consequences or the just penalty of our sin is eternal death in hell forever. He realized that our sin created a barrier between us and God. And and we can't remove that barrier on our own. The only one who can is the one whom God has sent into this world to pay He's the only one that can tear down that wall between us and God. You see, Jesus came to this earth for one specific purpose. It was to die for the sins of the world. Did you ever think about why Jesus died? Did you ever wonder why Jesus had to die? I mean, why would someone who perfectly obeyed all the commands of God's law and did not disobey in one point, why would he have to die? we can understand why an unrighteous person like us would have to die. But why would a perfectly righteous person die? Many times we're told that that if we just do enough good things that God will have to accept us. But if that's true, why did Jesus have to die? See, God tells us through His Word that Jesus became sin for us. That means that He took upon Himself the consequences of sin, that eternal penalty that we deserve, He took it upon Himself. We sang about it earlier when we said, His robes for mine. God's justice is appeased. We take on the robes of Christ's righteousness and we pass over to Him our robes of sinfulness. He takes on those robes and He carries them to the cross. And He suffers the penalty that we deserve to suffer so that we could enjoy life, eternal life, with God forever, so that we could be treated like royalty. The Bible tells us that no amount of good works will make up for our sin. Instead, we need a perfect sacrifice, a perfect substitution, someone to take our place who could obey all the demands of God and who would not fail in one point. And Jesus was that substitution. That's why He came. That's why He died. He was treated as though He had committed the very sins that we have committed. And that's why He was crucified. And He was treated that way so that we could be treated as if we have never sinned. Now, that doesn't mean we've never sinned. And that doesn't mean we will get to a place in this lifetime where we will be without sin. But what it does mean is that God, when He looks at us, when that substitution has taken place, He looks at us as if we have never sinned, as if we are His child. Friends, the path to a right standing with God, the way to break down that wall is through the death of Christ. And the way that you appropriate that to your life, the way that you have that happen in your life is through repentance and faith. Repentance means turning away from sin and turning to God. And then faith is simply trusting that Jesus is enough. Paul says it this way in Romans 10. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. What will we be saved from? Well, from the just penalty that we deserve, right? Because of our sin. We'll be saved from that. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Earlier in that same chapter, Romans 10, Paul says this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved you'll be saved from the wrath that you deserved i will be saved from the wrath that i deserve no one can repent and believe in your place that is a choice that you have to make in this lifetime and a failure to turn to God through Jesus Christ is a rejection of God how long Will you remain obstinate to God? How long will you fail to respond to His warning of judgment? Will you be like Pharaoh and harden your heart? Or will you humbly turn to Him for refuge? See, the message of 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 this day that we celebrate, Easter, is a message of Christ being raised from the dead. And when He was raised from the dead, the dead, that proved that God accepted His sacrifice on the cross. That what He did there was enough. And God now has Jesus sitting at His right hand. And Jesus will come one day to reign over all people on this earth. And you need to be ready for that day. There is a time of judgment coming. But God offers refuge from His own hand of judgment. If you would simply repent and Will you do that today? Let's pray. Father, there is not a more important message that we could talk about than our relationship with You. or We don't want to go into the next life unsure of where we stand before You. So I pray that You would give assurance to people today. Help people understand their responsibility to come and be saved from the wrath to come. Lord, we're thankful for the the signs of judgment that You have shown, like what we just read about. These locust plagues, really a sign of a greater judgment that will come without mercy. Lord, now we have signs of judgment with mercy. We have an opportunity to repent and believe. And so I pray that You would... Use your Holy Spirit to soften hearts to bring people to Jesus Christ. Lord, may we not be concerned what other people think, primarily what you think. I pray that you would uh, strengthen our desire to serve you more. We pray in Jesus.